Every day, I know that this virus brings new sadness and mourning to households across the land. That this is the biggest single challenge this country has faced since the war. The European Commission has launched a global campaign to find a cure for the coronavirus. Because today, the world is coming together to defeat this virus. Passing through the peak. I want to thank everyone on the NHS frontline, as well as care workers and those carrying out essential roles, who selflessly continue their day-to-day -day duties outside the home in support of us all. The Chase the Rainbow trend has seen kids all around the world put the colourful images in their window as a positive message. This is the worst public health crisis for a generation. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Hey Emmanuel, great to be here. My name is Stu Gibbs uh, from Emmanuel in London and it's a great privilege to be preaching from God's Word. Great privilege to be uh, invited by some of my friends, some of your leaders to preach to a church that I know and love and have done for a number of years um, and kind of a privilege to be asked to speak on what are some of the most obscure verses in the whole Bible that have been misused and abused over the centuries. Thanks a lot for that, guys. Um, you've just heard the verses read out. And um, truth is, these verses, some of them at least, have been used over the centuries to justify slavery in particular, to justify racism. Um, they were part of the rationale when we heard about, uh, in the verses, heard about Noah cursing his son. Uh, they were used, the idea was that Ham, Noah's son, was black and that his descendants were the people that populated Africa and that this curse that Noah put on him was the reason, even the justification for white Europeans ruling over and enslaving black Africans. Um, that was part of the rationale, part of the justification 
It was used when uh, Europeans turned up in Rwanda as well about 100 years ago uh, and used these verses to sow some of the seeds of ethnic division between the Hutu and the Tutsi peoples. It was used in South Africa uh, during the time of apartheid to, again, to just justify these verses. Genesis 9, 10, 11 were used as part of the justification for that as well. So there's no real way of getting around it that, that people use these verses in God's word to justify some of the most horrific things that we've seen over the last few centuries and that still play out in a myriad of different ways in our world today. So it's pretty ugly stuff, but you don't, you don't actually have to be a theologian to work out that the justification was horribly misplaced. Just a very simple reading of the text that we've just had read out to us shows us that. Even the fact that in Noah's words, he doesn't even speak to Ham, he speaks to Canaan, who's Ham's son, uh, which makes loads more sense, actually. The original readers of Genesis, this part of the Bible, uh, were the Israelites who were, who were locked into conflict with the Canaanites. So that makes perfect sense uh, of why it would be written and makes, helps us understand it a lot more. There's no indication in the text that Ham was black. So the whole thing really was, was a misuse of Scripture and obviously just to state the obvious, cannot be used to justify anything like racism or slavery. But it does, in these verses, it, it does actually point us in quite a sobering way as to why some of those things do exist, why racism does exist. Some of the roots of things like racism and sin more broadly and more generally. And that's what we're going to be looking at these whole verses, Genesis 1 through to 11, uh, give you a kind of a way of looking at the world. They're, they show us how to understand the world through the eyes of, of God, how God would want us to understand it. And to be honest, it's pretty sobering when you read it, because from Genesis 3 onwards, you're just being shown this kind of dark picture of the reality of sin. In Genesis 3, you, you see the story of Adam and Eve. You're seeing personal sin, rebellion against God, rooted in unbelief, uh, uh, like a deception uh, that comes, that, that, that tricks them into rebelling and, and turning against God. You begin to see the beginnings of relationship breakdown between them. In Genesis 4, you see something of the brokenness that, that sin causes, the insecurity internally. In the story of Cain and his brother Abel coming in to conflict, you see family breakdown. In, in Genesis 6, you see something of God's judgment against sin, the, the opposition, the holy opposition of God towards wickedness and evil. In Genesis 9, 10, 11, the ones that we're just looking at a little bit of here, you start to see uh, sin being played out on a global scale, the kind of corporate nature to sin. You're seeing tribalism beginning to take root in the nations of the world. And it's, it's like a bit like an, an oil painter. I often think of, if you think of the, the whole Bible of like a, 
the story of God, this kind of magnificent creation of all that God is going to do. These, these first few chapters, 3 to 11 especially, are like an oil painter who's just doing this black wash on the canvas. The, the whole thing starts with this incredibly sober, sometimes quite hard to read depiction of humanity under the curse of sin. And one of the reasons I think of it like that is because then the rest of the scriptures build on top of that. They start to draw this picture, this technicolor picture of God's grace, his kindness, his workings, his ways through people, through history, bringing about his purposes, which are good and perfect. But you can't really see the glory of it. You can't see the brightness of it. You can't really understand it fully unless you first see the darkness of the reality that mankind finds itself in because of sin. And and in this story that we've heard that we're going to just spend a bit of time on, it's it's like a little microcosm. It's it's like that big picture just gets played out in a in a quite a strange story. Um but several of those different ingredients are in it. So in verse 20, it says that Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. So far, so good. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And when you just read those first verses, kind of the way the Bible presents is it is kind of seems almost accidental. It's like, Noah's like the first, I mean, he's about 600, you know, but he's like the first teenager, you know, with his four pack of cider discovering, oh, this, this tastes nice. This feels funny. Oh, I feel happy. And he gets drunk. It's almost like you're not quite sure. Is this the first time? Does he know what's going to happen? It, it's not even clear. It, it actually shows us that sometimes sin has that kind of almost naivety to it. It kind of starts unintentionally. It, it doesn't seem to come across like it's something very deliberate that he does, but he, he enters into something and it, it unlocks uh, a whole, whole pathways of problems as a result. In verse 22, it carries on. It says, Ham, Noah's son, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And again, you, you don't know the whole story. It's quite sparse on the details. Uh, so it, it feels like Ham kind of wanders into the tent and, whoa, whoops-a-daisy, uh, you know, sees his dad lying there naked and drunk. You don't know if that was a very intentional thing. But what starts potentially as an innocent mistake certainly doesn't stay there. That's kind of clear in the way it's described that, he went and told his two brothers outside. There's, there's a sense in which he has a choice to make and he makes a bad one. He's got an opportunity to cover over his father's mistake and shame, but instead he chooses to expose it. And, and therefore the, the, the sin progresses. It becomes more of a problem. In verse 23, 24, we read about Shem and Japheth that, they took a garment and they laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And then it repeats, their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
So it kind of holds them up in a contrast to Ham. He, he goes in, sees the nakedness and exposes it. They do their utmost to protect the dignity of their dad. And what happens in a way is that their, their good choices, their righteous choices expose the bad, foolish choices of their brother. It kind of helps us to see something about sin that, that even though sometimes we walk into it kind of unintentionally that, that actually there's a choice involved as well, that that's part of the, the dynamic. And then in verse 25, as Noah wakes up, realizes what's happened and then speaks out this curse, you start to see something of the, the dynamics of the family conflict that sin brings about, the, the generational impact that not just Noah and not just his son, but his son and his descendants will be impacted by sin. You start to see some of the tribal dynamics as these descendants coming against these descendants. And you're just here, you're beginning to see the, the roots of something that we've watched play out in history for centuries, depressingly watching it happen again and again and again. So this story just contains this kind of little this little nugget of of all the some of the depths and dynamics of sin sometimes i think in in the church and as preachers in particular we we sometimes present sin in, in quite a one-dimensional way perhaps more like the first thing we looked at adam and eve the, the sense of personal sin against god that that it's just me and him and and i choose to do wrong and it can feel quite one-dimensional, quite simplistic almost. It's good for us to understand that the Bible doesn't view sin in a, in a simplistic, one-dimensional way. It, even in just these few verses, these few chapters that we're, we're looking at, we're, we're seeing that the Bible understands something of the complexity of sin. It, it recognizes that Sometimes there's an unintentional beginning, but it also recognizes that there are real choices involved. And it kind of recognizes that it's not always easy to discern, even in our own hearts, where the unintentional crossed over to the intentional, that there's a complexity to us as individuals. It, it recognizes something of the generational impact of, of sin on descendants and their descendants and and that just being played out through generations. It, it recognizes the global corporate nature. It, it has this multi-layered, nuanced, and yet quite devastating insight into the reality of sin in the world that we live in. And yet it, it might be that the most dramatic thing that this verse, these verses point us to it's kind of like the inescapability of sin. It's inescapability. God chose this righteous man, Noah, put him on the ark with his family, starts again with a, a new family to multiply and fill the earth. And when they walk out of the ark, the very next story in the Bible is that Noah gets drunk, he gets naked, and he starts cursing his kids. And you feel like it would almost be comic if it wasn't so tragic. It would be an interesting case study if it didn't 
feel so personal and real. I know that there's been times for me in these lockdown weeks, just stuck at home, kids at home. I can wake up in the morning full of good intention, pray, get a real sense of God's help and hand and will for my life, float down the stairs in near spiritual ecstasy and then find myself within about 10 or 15 minutes getting frustrated and angry and not quite cursing, but speaking at my kids and getting angry and annoyed and I'm at the end of my tether. And you think, I've only been here 10 minutes. 10 minutes ago, I was enjoying the goodness of God and now I've lost it. I'm at the end of my tether after 10 minutes. We read Noah first of all and we think, what an idiot. And then we read it again and we think, eh, yeah, that kind of feels familiar. That's a bit like my own life. It's like, it's like watching a sequel of a film that turns out to be the same as the original. I don't know if you've ever done that. Went with my kids to watch Star Wars 7. I'm thinking, great, these are like some of the cleverest, most creative people in the world. They've got a budget that I can't even imagine to make this film. They've had 40 years to think about how to develop the plot and then you watch it and you think, oh, they just, just made the same film <laughs> as Star Wars 4. Uh, no offence to any hardcore Star Wars fans out there. I know that there's depth and nuance to it that us, the rest of us don't understand. But it, it's like that. It's like this is, you read this and you're like, oh, this is the Garden of Eden just being played out again. Except this time, instead of the fruit from the tree, it's the fruit of the vine. It's three sons that end up in conflict, locked into conflict with one another. And it's a, a righteous man that ends up naked and ashamed. We see that pattern play out here in the book of Genesis. If we're honest, we see it play out again and again and again. It plays out through the scriptures, some of the most famous leaders, the most holy men in the scripture. Part of their story is they end up naked and ashamed before God because of their sin, because the Garden of Eden gets played out again and again and again in human experience. Temptation, deception, sin, folly, shame gets played out again and again uh, over years, over generations, through nations. And uh, it's quite a painful thing when we feel that in ourselves, when we, when we see it being played out in our own lives, our own sin. It's painful to watch it. It's difficult to see it, it can feel quite hopeless at times, just seeing the same dynamic again and again and again being played out. It's, it's also incredibly painful watching it play out on the stage of human history. I think for a lot of our friends, black and brown people around the world, millions of people, I think that is a, at least it's a part of the, the pain that people are experiencing, have experienced for generations and are expressing now with more clarity clarity and urgency is the pain of seeing the sin of racism being played out, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, and not always knowing what the line is between the two. It being, watching it being played out across nations, across people groups, watching it being played out through the generations 
and seeing I am facing the same situation that happened 30 years ago or 100 years ago and hundreds of years ago and nothing seems to change. And for some of us who can't fully understand what it's like being on the end of all of that, we, we can get a glimpse of it in our own lives, in our own other experiences of just recognizing the pain and the sense of hopelessness of watching things play out either personally or corporately or nationally and globally over generations and seeing, God, what is going on? What, where is the hope in all of this? And Genesis paints this pretty dark picture of, of humanity and it can, it can feel quite hopeless. It's, it, it's like in Genesis 3, it's like God just turns the lights out and you get plunged into darkness. But at the same time, it's like God just places this golden thread in your hand in the darkness. And, and in Genesis 3, that, that thread is initially, it's just this promise that one of Eve's descendants, one of Eve's seed will crush the head of the serpent, will, will crush evil, will, will reverse what's going on, will bring light into this darkness. And you see that thread just if you again if you were in the story it's like you're just you're in the, the darkness but you've just got this thread leading you through as you see this godly line this seed being traced this path being traced through genesis and that you just get this tiny little glimmer of light in this passage of that in in, in amongst noah's words he says this blessed be the lord the god of shem and it's again, it's just this, it's this little thread of hope. Okay, so that, yeah, there was that promise that God was going to do something through one of Eve's descendants that would change the world forever. And we're just, we're finding our way through. We're following, when, when is that going to happen? Who is that going to happen through? And the answer for us as believers and the answer if you're looking in, wondering what Christians have to say about this depth and reality of sin. The answer is that that, that golden thread leads us through all the way through the scriptures until we come to the person of Jesus, a descendant of Eve who does something that turns this situation around forever. So, Little verse in the, in the New Testament, a book called 1 John, chapter 3, verse 5. It describes Jesus and it says, He appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Just, I love it as just a, one of the shortest summaries of the work of Jesus. He appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He appeared to take away sins. When Jesus was dying on the cross, it's what you see is this cycle of the Garden of Eden that's been played out over centuries in every nation, in every life, in every heart, in every mind, finally gets broken. Where the, the one truly righteous man is left naked, shamefully naked on a cross. Yet not because he has sinned, not because he's been tempted and given in, not because he's been deceived, because he's the one person who that hasn't happened to. 
He, he breaks this cycle by not falling into sin, but being willing to step in, to go to the cross, to suffer the consequence of sin, even though he's the one person who doesn't deserve it. And through the cross, through his death, through his willing sacrifice, the Bible says he takes away the sins of the world. It is a, rem- it is a remarkable thing that he has done that the Bible claims he takes, he appeared to take away sins. The simplicity of it, it makes it sound like he's taken away the rubbish, you know, like when you clear up your house and you give it a good clean and you put the bags out and someone comes and takes it away so you never have to deal with that rubbish again. That's what Jesus promises. That's what God says. That's the offer that comes in the pages of Scripture. This cycle of sin that we get caught up with and we can't do anything about. The Bible says Jesus appeared. The reason he came was to take away sins. And it says, and in him there is no sin. It says that in his mouth there was no deceit. He's, he's uncorrupted. He's the one person in all of humanity, who's uncorrupted and incorruptible. The Bible describes him as like being a second Adam. Like Adam was the fountainhead and from him all of humanity flowed out, but the source got corrupted and now there's a new source, Christ, a new head, a new Adam. You would have, if you were reading Genesis for the first time, you would be thinking, Great, yeah, Adam, that guy, waster, sinned, idiot, made a massive mistake. And now God's starting again with Noah, righteous, brilliant. Now it's gonna, everything's going to change, except then you discover it was a false hope. It was a false hope. If we have superficial views of sin, superficial understanding of the depth and the reality and the inescapability of it in our hearts and in cultures and in generations, then we end up with superficial answers. We, we look around in our own lives and think, oh, well, I've got this problem, but I'll solve it by reading this book. I'll solve it by talking to that person. I'll solve it by educating myself on social media. We come up with superficial answers and, and we end up with false hopes and we realize, no, it didn't work. And I'm stuck in the cycle again. The, the Bible sees those false hopes. It, it even seems to kind of help us by taking us on that journey to help us realize what, what looks like it might be a hope isn't a real one. Not until God's promise is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, the second Adam who comes as a, an incorruptible fountainhead of a new humanity that you are invited to join in. He appeared to take away your sins. Literally, the simplicity of it is that he, the offer he makes to you is that if, even if you've been stuck in that cycle and you've fallen in it and you feel your shame and you've been there for decades, that he will come and take away your sin. And he invites all of us to be a part of a new people that, that he is gathering together from all the corners of the earth, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. Adam's sons and Noah's sons were locked in conflict because they inherited the sinfulness of their fathers. 
But Jesus offers us a new hope. The, the people of God, the sons of God, from every tribe, ethnicity, people group, nation, don't have to be locked into conflict because they've got a father, a savior, a liberator, a head who is not sinful, who is without sin. And therefore, when we look at him and when we look at what he's done, he invites us into a place of hope. There's, there's false hope all around us. There's opportunities for this and that that fall short. But in Christ, he, off, he just invites us today, not just to take away our sins, but he invites us into a, a new humanity. He reminds us, for many of us, that we are part of a new humanity that he is building, that's going to last forever, that's going to be for all eternity. And that is a great hope, my friends. And I pray that you put your trust in him again, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the 1,000th time that you just look to him for your hope today. Amen.